Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. The rise of China has been one of the biggest structural growth stories of the late 20th and early 21st century, and I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Uh, Australia and Australian investors have been really significant beneficiaries of this. It comes up in investor conversations all the time, but the mood for investors in China does seem to be changing At present, there are fears around the property development sector. Evergrande has been a big story. An energy crisis, which is a big story in investment circles. I'm not hearing it a lot in the sort of broader press. Regulators cracking down on the tech giants. Jack Ma going into hiding is probably not the right word, but it was very quiet for a while there. But also private education and other sectors. And that's without going into tariffs and even bans on Australian exports, including coal, beef and wine, many other things. This really matters to a lot of our investors. We have a lot of investors who have started getting exposure to China knowing that that growth's not going to slow down anywhere near as meaningfully perhaps as the rest of the world. It does matter. So how much do investors really need to fear and how much of this is just speed bumps on a longer-term growth trajectory? Today, I'm speaking with Julian McCormack from Platinum Investments, who is one of our most popular guests. Julian's got the most extraordinary uh, broad general knowledge and understanding of history, and uh, and Platinum has a very strong view on China, which is going to be super helpful for us. Julian, thanks so much for joining me. Gemma, always a pleasure. So Julian, you guys at Platinum produced a piece back in July talking about some of the challenges facing investors with exposure to China. And at that point, you were saying you felt they were overstated. Can you talk us through that, you know, where, your, where your positioning was back then and if anything's changed? Sure, Gemma. Um, so the, the background is we invest globally. It's a sort of silly thing to say, but you know, we, we have about 20% of our flagship fund, the international funds. In, in China, and that's matched by around about 25% long in the States and about 20 in Europe. And that actually corresponds roughly to the market size and from our perspective, the, the market opportunity in each of those places. So what's so really interesting as a backdrop to this conversation is for most investors, that is like insane. Oh my God, 20% of your money in China. It's the second biggest equity market in the world. It's one of the cheapest equity markets in the world. And it's a functional, well-ordered economy that has achieved remarkable things in a couple of generations. And everyone knows that, but they don't want to go and invest there. And, and so that's just a lovely place <laughs> to invest if you want to make money over long periods of time because it's neglected. It's not particularly well analysed. And whilst there are economic challenges there, please demonstrate a place that doesn't have economic challenges. So that, that, that's the background. Um, so the specific challenges that are being discussed uh, at present around regulation and, and reform of highly indebted industries, these are sweeping reform programs and, and part of a very reform-minded administration that goes all the way back to you know 2012 when they took over. So just contextualise them and, and they'll perhaps look a bit more familiar. So uh, when the Xi administration took over, people were very, very angry 
and they were very angry about pollution and political corruption. They were the first two things that got cracked down on by the administration. Then there was an oversupply reform program, a, a reform program to address oversupply, particularly in the state-owned sector, that caused a massive industrial slowdown through to 2015, 2016 in China. Um, and since then, the sort of latest ones that have caused some angst for investors are reform of tech and anti-competitive practices and, and so some abusive practices in, in that um, space, reform of the education space and reform of the property development market. Just contextualising all that stuff, what, I'd, what we'd ask people to do is when they hear a story about a regulatory program in China, that's generally presented as pretty breathless type stuff. So, for example, the ABC, which is a wonderful institution here in Australia, no criticism intended, but even they were re reporting on moves to crack down on anti-competitive practices in tech as sort of she's war on everything finds a new front. And what I'd ask people to do is when they hear the facts of what's being presented in those regulatory reform programs, substitute China for Europe and see how you feel about it. Because guess what? We're, we're an institution that needs to do business in you know, foreign jurisdictions. So we've had to completely comply with GDPR, which is the European treatment of data. We've had to um, completely uh, reform or change the way we pay brokers under MIFID, which is a European um, initiative. And the Europeans have fined Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Microsoft because of anti-competitive and, and data handling practices. So, and, and, and then don't get me started on environmental regulation in Europe. So, you know, these are much more reform-minded interventionist type systems in general. And I, I wouldn't think China's terribly out of step, you know, with, with people's expectations of what a system like that should do once you get rid of the deep breathing and emotive stuff around it. I love the way you describe that because <laughs> we do, we get quite emotional about some of this stuff. It sounds so shocking. I think in China uh, the numbers are so enormous. That's, that, that's quite intimidating for people when you just look at the numbers uh, because I'm going to ask you about Evergrande now, which has been one of those super exciting stories because everyone was like, is it the next Lehman Brothers? Is this going to be the collapse that then tips off? the domino effect of everything else collapsing. So yeah. for anyone who's, who's not been paying super close attention, uh, Evergrande is a Chinese property developer. Uh, depending on who you listen to, they're the largest or second largest. Uh, they're talked about as the most indebted company in China, possibly the world. Again, there's a lot of contention about the numbers, not that people argue directly with each other, but if you're reading the numbers in different sources, they don't agree with each other specifically. Yeah. And some, and when I say the numbers are massive, they talk about, you know, one and a half million apartments being sold off the plan, which, you know, in the Australian context is kind of. Be all a lot. Australia, yeah. All, yeah, all our apartments. That's all the apartments <laughs> we've got. Um, and, so, you know, so the numbers are astonishing and we saw that incredible footage, which was actually back in July, so it was a little while ago, of, you know, ghost cities, so huge apartment complexes that have never been fitted out. So you've got all the sort of basic construction done but no plumbing, no no tapware, no carpets, no nothing. It's just sort of concrete block. Uh, 
all of these buildings being imploded, literally imploded because they can't be sold and can't be completed. So it's sort of eye-watering to watch in the Australian context. You go, oh, that was an entire city that no one moved into and just blew it up. Tell us about Evergrande. Tell us about this part of the story. Yes, yeah, so, so Evergrande's total asset base about three hundred billion US. It's largely funded by debt, so call it three hundred billion of debt or, or other liabilities because they've got liabilities to you know tradies and whatever. And that's supposed to be the Lumen moment, right? So three hundred billion compares to sixty trillion of CDOs in the in the Lehman crisis. And the and the issue with the sixty trillion was you couldn't separate out anyone's balance sheet from anyone else's balance sheet in the banking system. And so, yeah, and, and the banks were all, you know, the, well, the investment banks were sort of 30 to 40 times leveraged. So just on a naive basis of equity assets. And so you're talking about order of magnitude different issues, you know, sort of like saying, you know, an ant died and that's really bad and that's comparable to an elephant dying. They're just staggeringly different scales. And I think people's frames of reference get a bit skewy once once numbers get really big. Oh, it's a big number, so it must be really bad. There's no no derivative market off the back of Evergrande's debt. It's not a bank. And the banking system in China is grotesquely under-leveraged. There's massive savings in the system, right? So they're, they're just incomparable issues. I think people are right in the sense that it could be a problem because it could be a problem for consumer confidence, could be a problem for trust in the value of property, which they, you know, is their sort of wealth effect type thing. I mean, very similar to Aussies, right? So if if, if Aussies felt like, oh my God, actually, you know, that house I own and the investment property I have and the holiday house I have, if, if, if they all went down in value by 30%, I'd be really sad. Maybe I go on holiday and buy a flat screen. That kind of effect can happen. Absolutely. That's absolutely possible. And we'll talk, I want to talk at some length about, you know, what that means economically. But in terms of leverage in the system, scale of the problem and interlinkages, it's just nothing like Lehman. Absolutely nothing like it. So it's completely incomparable in terms of scale and, and interlinkage. So let's pause there and maybe we can talk about the economic stuff off the back of that. Yeah, I'd love to. I was going to give you a question without notice just based on something I was reading this morning actually, which was the issue may not be the property developers themselves, but the banking sector not locking up like the GFC but simply being much less willing to lend and a slowdown effect from that. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, look, um, it's already happened. So this is the really interesting thing about China is when China was the most expensive equity market on the planet in 2007 with a 26, 27 times forward PE, which is basically hardly ever reached in any equity market ever, (laughs) not just in China. Back then, everyone knew that China would compound away at 10 to 12 real every year and it was all going to rip along and it was all fantastic and blah, blah, blah. And then the system had a massive problem. There was no sovereign bond market of any note. 
So the central government couldn't finance fiscal deficits in a modern functional sense. And the only tool they had was to stimulate by the banking system. So there was massive fragility in the system because they didn't have particularly good levers in the event of economic calamity. And many didn't foresee that there was pretty systemic risks building into the global economic system in in the lead up to the GFC. Then you get the GFC. So what do you do when your export markets all collapse? You know, literally, you've bought you've bought Met coal at two sixty a ton, and now the market price is eighty. Right? That's you know, you've bought scrap at you know three hundred and something a ton, and now it's priced at hundred, and that's on the ship on the water coming towards you. It's a pretty scary world for the Chinese because. You know, they were much more export-oriented back then. So what did they do? They stimulated via the banking system. All of the debt addition to GDP on a net basis that's happened in China in the last 15 years all happened in the wake of the GFC. Debt to GDP in China has not gone up since 2010. So when people say, oh, my God, it's a debt-fueled system and blah, 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 they're just not up on current events. <laughs> nominal credit growth, which is a nominal number, it's in today's dollars. Credit growth, less nominal GDP, has on average been negative since late 2010. And what's happened? The banking sector has gone to big premiums to book, you know, one and a half to two times book, to like half of book. So the market said, oh, these bank balance sheets are crap. <laughs> Valuations have collapsed. The equity market's gone from 27 times earnings to like 11 times earnings. So it's gone from the most expensive equity market in the world to one of the cheapest equity markets in the world. Property prices have appreciated by slightly less than nominal GDP over the whole period. So this is a place that doesn't at all look like it's about to have a financial crisis. It looks like it already had it. That's an extraordinary summary and not one I've read anywhere, <laughs> to be frank. You know, the, each snippet is quite, as you say, breathless and dramatic. Uh, but in that context, it's very different. So let's get on to the other one that's really concerning people and certainly has been reported breathlessly and has had real impacts on our investors for sure. So Alibaba and Tencent are the two big names that our investors know from a a tech perspective in the same way they know the fangs and a handful of others in the US. Uh, You know, big tech has been the place to invest for the last 10 to 15 years and suddenly it's apparent that Chinese regulators are very serious about cracking down on those companies that seem to have too much power. You know, there's stories about teens being limited to three hours a week of gaming. My son would have a heart attack. If I told uh, him that. Um, <laughs> he's not a teen yet either. That's upsetting. Um, you know, so there's all of these stories about what appears to be quite stringent regulation relative to, uh, to other countries. Alibaba's fallen, you know, over 50%, um, depending on your time frame. How are you guys seeing that, those developments? You've alluded to it already, but talk us through it. Look, they're, they're probably reasonable sort of opportunities now, Tencent and, and Baba, but, you know, in a similar way to Google and Facebook, which, by the way, are not highly valued companies. 
but their, their PEs are low. So these are sort of mid-20s at best PE businesses because they become social utilities. You know, they, they can't, they, they become social utilities with a lot of regulatory pressure at the, at the boundary, as well they might. You know, I mean, the notion that Facebook or Google are genuinely sort of, you know, that all of the freedom of speech and anti-competitive and other pressures that build on the margins are entirely appropriate because society needs to wrestle with the fact that, hey, like all the infrastructure that lets you guys operate is all public. Like the internet is a public good, right? You know, it, it was developed by, you know, government. That's why it exists. <laughs> so the notion that we shouldn't have some regulatory pressure and all, all the rest of it around these things is entirely sensible, but they remain utilities and they remain quite rapidly growing utilities for what they are. So in China, you've, you've got the current thing is, is the erosion of the walled gardens that they had. So, you know, people would be surprised by the level of anti-competitive stuff that was tolerated or even sort of encouraged in China for a long time to facilitate the development and the build-out of these things. But, I mean, for example, so if you had Tencent Music and you had a song by, I don't know, The White Stripes, and then you opened another music app, it, you couldn't get that song because you had exclusivity within these walled gardens. And that's a stupid system, right? If you want, you know, maximal sort of social impact of, of these, what are effectively public goods with some, you know, with, with a profit motive, but with, with a lot of, so that's all breaking down and that, that is being broken down by the state. And then Baba has a whole series of anti-competitive stuff around its practices on Tebow and Taobao, really around, you know, forced exclusivity, two choose one or whatever it's called. You know, you, you know, if you advertise with us, you can't advertise other people and blah, blah, blah. You know, that, that stuff is just openly anti-competitive and, and isn't being tolerated by the state. Totally sensible, totally sensible. Um, the gaming stuff is sort of greeted as, I don't know, some sort of invasion of liberty or whatever, but, I mean, it seems pretty sensible to me. Like, yeah. By the way, everyone in China knows that everyone will get around it, right? Like, well, a teenager or, or a, you know, an under 18, it was under 18, under 15, I can't remember now, but, you know, it is not going to say, oh, well, I'll just tolerate that. No, they'll take Dad's ID or whatever. And they'll do, like, everyone accepts all that. But the message is, and it, this is the thing about China, it operates as an imperial model. And the you know the mountains are high and the emperor's a long way away, right? That's the old Chinese saying, and it basically means we get these edicts and we abide by them. We do our best and we all work it out as we go along, but there's a lot of grey, you know, in their implementation and 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 compliance. But everyone gets the basic message, and the basic message around young people is, we don't want you to be little robots. Right, we don't want you to be a tutoring classes for three hours after school every day, and we don't want you to be sitting on the gaming console or whatever, if you know, for hours and hours and hours every day. And they're probably pretty sensible messages. And we're wrestling with those messages in the West. In China, by the way, this stuff was coming for ages. Like we sold Baba and Tencent, you know, back in November of 2020 because we got these consistent messages from the state saying, hey, look, we're going to do this. This is a thing where, you know, 
we're thinking about a whole bunch of regulation around anti-competitive and, and, and socially undesirable practices and we're going to regulate it. It's like, okay, you know, we, we're on record in public documents in September, October, November last year saying, yeah, this looks really serious. We'd better pay some attention. And then, you know, six months later, everyone says, oh, my God, that was quick. Really? That wasn't. It's pretty obvious. So that's where those things are up to. That they are, they are going to be very highly regulated, but they are going to be everywhere because society has to wrestle with how we treat those very, very, very powerful utilities, but also utilities that exist by the grace of the society in which they operate. And that's sensible. Yeah, if anyone's interested, there's uh, a court case in the US uh, with anti-competitive practices with Facebook and Google, and you read some of that stuff and your eyes will fall out of your head. It's pretty, it's pretty scary. Uh, the one that caught my attention because it was easy to understand was uh, Google bidding against itself effectively for AdWords uh, to drive up the price for small business. But, you know, if you want to pay $2 a word or whatever it is, they would bid it up to $2.50 and that was the price you paid. And you're like, oh, that stuff is awful. And, yeah. you know, ordinarily wouldn't be permitted, right? So it'd be interesting to see how some of that plays out. Bringing it all together. So we have property development, massive sector. So there's estimates that it's as much as 30% of Chinese GDP. You can tell yeah. me whether I'm correct about that or not. And, uh, and you've the got order to take- of magnitude, right? I mean, it's, it's a difficult number to pin down, but it's, it's big. Yeah. So it's big um, and there are concerns. There's tech, huge contributor to economic progress, I guess, as much as GDP. You know, some of this stuff is yeah, it's about growth rather than profit sometimes. <laughs> but you've got these two massive sectors uh, that are facing some pressure, although you've certainly calmed me down. I see if you've calmed everybody else down as well. Talks about a slowing Chinese economy. And as you say, you know, we used to think reasonable growth for China was 10 to 12% per annum. So this is in the context of China versus the rest of the world at a couple of a percent. Does that concern you, slowing growth? No, it's entirely appropriate. I mean, you're... Some way, so basically, what can a system grow at? It can grow at population growth plus productivity. Um, that's ungeared. That's what a system can grow at in macroeconomic terms. Population growth zero. <laughs> so we're not going to get a whole lot from there. It's probably negative. Um, there's a wrinkle around that though, which is you are going to get continued urbanisation of China, right? So. Because the scale is different, people think that China is unprecedented and they just deliberately or negligently overlook the experiences of Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, all of which follow very similar development. And Singapore is sort of a limited value example because of its geography, but is sort of comparable. So all those places went from 25 to 35% urbanised so mostly agrarian, to about 80 to 90% urbanised. And in that process, productivity went through the roof. And the funny thing about that is as those transformations happen, inequality goes up and then narrows. The amount of money that goes to consumption goes down because savings in the system goes up and then they dissave at the end of it. And that's exactly what's happening in China. And we're about 60% urbanised and we're going to get to 80 to 90% urbanised. 
it won't be that different. It might be a little less than that. You know, the states is a little less than that because it's a you know it's a bit more sort of distributed population based. But you know, it it's going to be high, and and we're not there. So there's something like out of about 1.4 billion, there's about 850 million people in cities. Of those people in that system, something like at best, at most, 600 million live in all of the modern housing stock of China. If you are incredibly aggressive with the data and it's released by square meterage, so you've got to make some assumptions around it, you can get to a number where maybe China's constructed 200 million modern apartments in its entire history because there was no private ownership of residential property prior to 1996. There was basically universal housing, but it wasn't it was low quality. So of this 850 million people in cities, at most 600 million are in modern housing. And there's a bit of blurring because some of the modern housing isn't in cities, so it's a bit yeah, it's a bit blurred. But uh, so of 1.4 billion, 600 million are in modern housing. So can you see why the Chinese state absolutely wants very, very rapid construction of housing units? Because it's pretty important to the functioning of the state, along or of the society, and and along that path. We're in this intermediate step now where build, build, build was you know, the, the, the basic sort of motto of the system. That's now build at reasonable quality without too much debt and make it relatively affordable. And it's a, it's a change. And so what's happened is you've had this huge derating of the higher quality housing developers because it's an area of regulatory risk in inverted commerce. Our bet around that, our, you know, our, our balance of probabilities around that is the better quality developers, of which is a whole bunch, are going to be just fine. They will continue to have something like 15% ROE businesses with actually pretty lazy balance sheets, and they'll just sort of churn along. Why can we say that? Because we've seen these regulatory pushes in this system before. Some go a bit further than you might think, so the after-school education thing. But most are pretty sort of sensible. And the big one we'd cite is insurance. We had a massive clean out of the system about 10 years ago. But these things happen on an ongoing basis in this system. So going all the way back to 15 years ago, you know, steel making was reformed massively out of you, you, you there were these things called beehive coke ovens, they were banned, and you could only construct glass furnaces of a certain internal volume and blah blah. Like those things happen in this system. At the moment. For some reason, we in the West are getting presented with a whole bunch of messages around the validity of that system. And so regulatory pushes in that system are being presented as incredibly scary and evidence that the system itself is invalid. That's a political thing, not an economic thing, but it's affecting market pricing for sure. It's scaring investors off. So that leads to a circumstance much like going and buying Japanese equities in the 90s or 2000s. And by the way, that's been a fantastic place to have your money. Right? You've actually made fantastic money 
because people anchor to the high point. They anchor to the Japanese equities of the 80s when Japan was the most expensive equity market in the world. So when you see these headlines of all the Japanification of China or whatever, yeah, great, bring it on. Right? Because all it means is increasing neglect by investors of a system. Now, just to finish that thought out, does the system need financial markets? It absolutely desperately needs financial markets because one of the you know, really important tools that will happen in China over the next sort of few decades is the ongoing privatization, corporatization, privatization, and distribution of state-owned equity, uh, state-owned entity equity, in exactly the same way as we did that in the West, with postal systems and telecoms and banks and all the rest. That'll continue to happen, and you'll continue now to fund central government deficits in a deep and liquid bond market. So China now has the world's second biggest national sovereign bond market. And it's crucial because that's how they'll fund themselves now, not by the banking system, which led to that huge gearing explosion post the GFC. So, you know, that, that's our summary of the system. Is it going to feel comfortable? No, everyone's going to tell you for the next decade or whatever how bad China is in the same way as they did that about Japan, right? But most of you listeners, many of your listeners will have been to Japan. That seems pretty functional. It all chips along pretty well and people are pretty happy with their Mazdas and Toyotas. So, that's that's the sort of parallel I, I, I draw about the current situation. I was going to ask you a question about what happens if China goes completely south, but I'm not entirely certain that question's relevant anymore. I feel like you've answered uh, whether or I mean, not you think there's so, any likelihood. I mean, what are the risks? I mean, there, there are risks around the geopolitics of the situation. There always are. Point one, the demographic thing is vastly overplayed. I mean, places with shrinking populations are actually fabulous places to go and live. So, you know, come on, like, let's be serious. We could go and buy a village in Spain if we wanted to, right? Because we've got a shrinking population that's highly urbanised and those places are peripheral and whatever. So, so, so what is, what's, there's a cost in terms of dynamism, et cetera, of the system, sure. But if we're going to live on a planet that's functional for, you know, <laughs> future generations, of humans, you probably need populations to shrink. And if you manage it well, you get into a situation a bit like the Japanese, where the economy shrinks in aggregate over time by a little bit, and the population shrinks by a little bit more, which means everyone gets richer per head every year, which is a lovely problem to have. So that's why Japan has had real per capita GDP growth about the same on some measures, higher than the US for the last 30 years, ladies and gentlemen. So this notion of crisis and problem and decay and blah, 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 when those things are in the headlines about a place, a company, a system, it might be a good time to consider that place, company, or system because everyone knows it's terrible, it's awful, it's blah, 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 right? When everyone's super confident about a system, and thinks it can't fail and is you know, invincible, that's when you should be terrified. Julian, you guys at Platinum produce lots of great content. I like to just ask you the questions and then you can answer them all for me, but you also write heaps of great stuff. 
Where do people go to find this? You are putting this out there in the world and I think it's really immensely valuable for people to find. So where do they go? The best place is a thing called The Journal on our website and it, it, is, it is pretty good. I mean, we're investors but we're also interested in the world and, you know, we've got engineers and virologists and lawyers and doctors and whatever who are thinking about stuff and, you know, we produce some good stuff and it's – and. We're sort of aggressively anti-salesy, so and and sort of aggressively self-deprecating as well. So it, we're not going to be kicking the wall down trying to sell your stuff all the time. We we actually do try and think about the world and produce stuff as, that, that we believe in. Having spoken to you many times now, I feel pretty fortunate. Your knowledge is sort of deeper and wider than most people I speak to, <laughs> and you have a wonderful way of uh, of making it concise and easy to understand for people. Julian from Platinum Investments, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're very kind. It's always a great pleasure to talk to you, Gemma. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we love hearing from you. We receive fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions and hearing about what you want to hear about. China was definitely one of those things. And uh, and hopefully we've given you, you know, a completely different perspective on it based on today's recording. Uh, please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.